Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, good evening. And welcome. We are in session eight of our journey through the book of Revelation. This is number six in our seven churches uh, through Asia Minor that we're taking a look at, the Church of Philadelphia, the church where if you took a personality test of individual congregations, this is the, the church that everybody wants to be. But before we delve into the scriptures, let's open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for the opportunity, Lord, the freedom and the gift that is the study of your word. We thank you for seeing fit so that for us who are your creations, that uh, you gave your only begotten son for us, that you also gave us this wonderful, intricate book that through the years, through the, the centuries, Lord, that contains your message, which is still relevant, which is still um, our guide throughout time to know who you are as well as who we are before you. So help us to embrace that relationship more fully. Help us to be the source of compassion that you would have us to be. And help us, above all, to learn from these pages that we may be more like the church that you would have us to be, that you created us and called us to be, and that you redeemed us to be. So join with us now. Open our hearts, hands, and minds to you as we commit this time and ourselves into your hands without any reservation. Inspire us to go forward. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So the church of brotherly love, the friendly church, Philadelphia, just by way of review, we are again in the second part of this book where John is told to write down what is now, what is taking place at this point in time as he is writing. So he's writing about these seven churches that he helped to nurture in the, in the area of Asia Minor. And again, these are this is probably the most practical part of the book of Revelation. And again, this is the only book of the Bible that has the audacity to say, read me, I'm special, that promises a special blessing to those that hear and those that proclaim the word as Jesus is dictating it here. And in this case, we're talking about real local churches, citywide churches that had real interpersonal and extrapersonal problems, problems within the congregation, problems from the outside of the congregation coming in. But these are open letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not just these seven, but every local church. Because through these pages as a local church, we can learn from the lessons, from the problems that these seven congregations are having, and we can learn from Christ's instructions on how to deal with those problems. And we also get, and this is again conjecturable, but I'm putting it out there so that you have an awareness of it, that there's a prophetic view of each and every one of these churches, that these churches taken in this specific order 
denote a different time in the age of the capital C or the church universal. But these are what we need to take in our own study as to the levels of meaning, how, how we factor in as members of local churches and how our local churches act in terms of how they are in their relationship with God, how they are in their relationship with each other, with the membership, and how they are in relations to the society that shelters them. Incidentally, I would ask that for those of you that are joining us on the live stream, please give us a, a quick comment to let us know that you're there. And if you have any questions that come up through the course of this study, please go ahead and mention those down so that we can try to answer them in real time. Uh, if you're joining us after this has been recorded, then feel free to mention something in the comment section down below so that we can answer it in the next section, the next session, excuse me. And please help us spread the Word of God. If these videos have been a blessing to you, help us to make them more visible by liking them, by commenting about them, by asking questions, and by sharing them on social media. So please join us in our effort to make the Word of God known as far as we can. So these are the different areas of meaning. The name of the church has a significance with what Jesus is about to tell them. He often uses, as, uses the name of the local congregation as a jumping off point to proclaim a truth about the situation that congregation is in. There is meaning in the title that Christ uses of himself. And again, these are usually left over from the description that John pens of the risen Christ in chapter 1. There's a commendation. This is what your church is doing right. This is your report card. These are your A's and B's. But there are usually also concerns. This is where you get the C's, D's, and failures. This is what you need to work on and work stringently on. And what's interesting within these seven churches, there are two churches that have nothing bad said about them. But there are also two churches that have nothing good said about them. And we need to keep in mind why. What are these churches doing that causes so much ire in the risen Christ that he has nothing good to say about them? What are the churches doing, on the other hand, that are so beneficial and so narrow-focused that Christ has nothing bad to say about them? There's also his instructions to them on how to remain an overcomer or how to overcome the obstacles that the enemy has set in front of them. And there's also a special promise to the overcomer. And I want you to write this down in your notes. Again, your notes, if you don't have them printed out right now, they're available at our website at highlandbaptistchurch.org. But the promise to the overcomer is not just specific to the members of these local congregations. Now remember, these are open letters. Whoever has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, all of us. So if you are facing a similar set of circumstances to what Jesus is proclaiming in these different, in these seven epistles within the book of Revelation. If you're enduring a type of trial that echoes what he's talking about, that promise to the overcomer, that reward for victory is up for you as well. You will qualify for it. So that's part of what we can take from this book, from these seven letters, is not just the dynamics of local church life. Because again, Every church listed here, the issues can impact that they're still alive in the church today. You might have a bit of Philadelphia here, and a little bit of Smyrna over there, but whatever the case may be, these dynamics are still present within our local communities of faith. 
But if you're enduring something similar to what they're going through, the promise to the overcomer is also a qualifier that you can live up to if you heed Christ's instruction. So this is very relevant, spiritually speaking, as well as, as dynamically speaking, for us of today's time. Let's move on. Just to go over the churches that we've covered in brief, just by way of review. Ephesus was a warning that programs and doctrine alone do not make a church, that Christ demands devotion, personal relationship with the people that He has saved, Savior and Lord. And part of the benefit of being someone that is part of the family of God is not only our relationship with each other in an organizational sense, but literally being family, called together by God, ordained as such by the sacrifice of His Son, and that we also now have, as Paul tells us, the right to go boldly before the throne of grace to make our petitions known. In other words, we can go to the very throne of the universe in prayer and talk to God and have a personal relationship with the very creator of the universe, and that is made possible because of the death of His Son. The sacrifice that He laid down provides us with a relationship, a communion, to use an old-fashioned term, direct communion with our Heavenly Father. And that's a relationship that He wants us to have with Him, that He wants to be personal and intimate and close, so much so that He gave us the Holy Spirit of God to dwell within us, that we are always and forever in His presence, hearing from Him, communicating with Him through the pages of the Word as well as through our spoken word to Him. Smyrna was the church under persecution in, in uh, remember, Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh is uh, a medicine that is used to, um, to quell pain, but it's also an embalming agent. It is a scent of death, and which is indicative of what this church was going through. It was being persecuted by the Roman authorities because it would not worship Caesar in the place of God. So his instruction to them and their issue was simply we're undergoing persecution. Jesus tells this church, I will not put anything more upon you. Just hold fast to my name until I come. Pergamum uh, was the church that Jesus warns you cannot have the same value as the society that you're trying to change. Your value system as Christians must be redeemed just as you are redeemed. Be conformed, excuse me, be not conformed to the ways of this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind, the regeneration that the Holy Spirit gives us that changes our wants, our desires, and the person that we are completely. So that when we are seen by those outsiders, we are seen as someone different, a peculiar people. And yet, as Peter says, a royal priesthood. So the value system on the outside of the church, by definition, no matter what society that you're living in, no matter what time that you're living in it, there will always be corruption because we are a fallen, feeble, fickle, finite people. There will, if we're not redeemed, there will always be a difference between the society that is without the church and the people that are within the church. This church must stand on the value system as ordained in the Holy Scriptures. Therefore, there must be a different a difference in the way that we are versus the way that the unredeemed are. Thyatira, the basic message of the, that, uh, that letter was discipleship requires discipline. 
Because remember, there was somebody within the congregation that was stirring the pot, that was leaving, uh, that was persecuting from within. And Jesus proclaims, and also corrupting the word of God. It wasn't just that uh, she was engulfed in sin, even though that was the case, but she also proclaimed herself a prophetess and tried to harp on herself an authority that she did not have a right to. And as a result, Jesus says that you cannot turn your back on this person. You cannot tolerate sin within the church. In order to be a disciple, you must be disciplined. And you must, as a congregation, be willing to bring that discipline to bear when needs arise. The church of Sardis, as we just went over last, last Wednesday, excuse me, was a church that is all appearances and no substance. All flash, all glitz, all performance, but no transformation, no change on the inside, no discipleship. You, are, you, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Meaning that from the outside, you look as though you're thriving, but on the inside, when you look at your discipleship pathway, when we look at the way your people are maturing, when we look at their devotion to God, there's nothing there. It's all show and no substance. And that brings us to today's congregation, the one that we're focusing on, the church at Philadelphia. Now, this is the financial district at uh, Share, which is the city that currently sits on top of what was once Philadelphia. Uh, what was Philadelphia, the ruins are, are barely there anymore because of the great expanse that this new city has occupied. Again, we're talking about the westernmost part of Asia Minor, but we're slowly moving eastward. This is uh, Philadelphia is located more in the east on the trade routes between the Eastern Empire and Rome itself. As you can see, it's, it's farther east than Sardis. In fact, there are, again, multiple trade routes that you can get there from Ephesus. But if you draw a line matching each specific church, this is where we're going. And you see this is leading towards the center of the Roman province of Asia Minor. Just by way of uh, talking a little bit about this city and her history. Again, it's presently uh, Edesher in Turkey. It was built in 189 BC by the city of Pergamos, by the kingdom there. And one of the reasons that this is really unique is the fact that this is the youngest of all the cities we've talked about so far. It was named in honor of a relationship between uh, one king of Pergamum, which was Attalus II, and the person who would secede him, succeed him rather, uh, Eumenides II, who was his younger brother. In fact, there were coins minted in Philadelphia that show the two brothers side by side, and you can barely distinguish between the two of them. So closely was not only their physical resemblance, but also their relationship. And again, we've talked about the, uh, the meaning behind the word. This is the city of brotherly love. Or uh, to put it more in the contextual of the local congregation, this is a friendly church. Um, Philae, to, to not just to love in a brotherly sense, but also to uh, be friendly toward. If you're someone that is intrigued by uh, English culture, you are known as an Anglophile, or someone uh, who is, well, let's go, let's, let's keep moving. It was very much a center of the Hellenistic culture of the time because, again, it was a new city. So a lot of what they had was brand new, shiny, 
uh, it, it, it didn't have the vestiges of that old culture, that old Lydian culture. It was brand new and all Greek. And it was used actually as a center of, of missionary cultural exchange between the Greek city-states later on the Roman Empire and the rest of Asia Minor. So even at this point in time, uh, before the coming of Christ, this city was used basically to spread uh, civilization throughout the rest of this area of land. It was also an area that was made famous for its wine production and its principal deity was Dionysus, who we've talked about before, the, the Greek god of, of wine and more or less of partying. And again, it was located on a principal trade route between Rome and, and the, the region known as Phrygia. It was basically a place where people liked to go between major cities to stop, to refresh, uh, to take in some of the local sites, and uh, basically to, re, uh, to resupply before moving on. But Paul and later on the, the apostles, the early church takes advantage of this, of its, both its location and its usefulness in this region by making it a, a missionary outreach center, a place where relief supplies can flow to the different churches that needed it, where people could be commissioned to be evangelists and go out throughout the rest of the world taking the scrolls of Holy Scripture and to proclaim the Word of God and form other churches. It was part, again, of a region known as the Burning Land. Uh, this area was prone to volcanic activity and, and seismic activity. In fact, it was so prone to it. We've, we've already talked about several of the other cities suffering great damage because of earthquakes. And uh, Philadelphia itself was almost destroyed by an earthquake in uh, 17 AD. And Christ will actually pick up on this when he describes a commendation to the city a little bit later on. He received, the city received assistance from Rome, from Emperor Tiberius. He helped to rebuild it the same way that he had helped to rebuild other cities. And it was renamed Neo Caesarea in his honor for the amount of financial support and the, the, the centurions that he sent over to help rebuild the city, the engineers that he donated. It was renamed Flavius after, the death, after his death in honor of his son who was continuing the efforts of Vespasian. But it returned after Vespasian died. Apparently, people at church, we don't like change. So after the death of the Emperor Vespasian, it snaps back around and becomes again Philadelphia. Sardis, strangely enough, the place that was fallen, uh, that was the regional capital. So it also became uh, the regional capital during John's lifetime, it governed the city of Philadelphia. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, one of the early church fathers, actually writes that within this community, there was a heavy persecution against the local Christians by the Jewish synagogue of the area. So apparently the city of Philadelphia had a large Jewish population that uh, sought to combat the Christians, seeing them as a, as a competitor to their religious right. But many, the, the flip side of that is because they held to this ministerial ideal, because they held to being a missionary, a mission-minded church, many of them were converted. Many of them became Christians because of the love that they had uh, set as an example. So a lot of the Jews 
became some of the city's Christians who, who later recanted all the persecution that they had brought on this church. So again, we're in chapter 3, starting with verse 7. So take out your copy of God's Word with us and let's read together. And again, if in your particular translation um, you see a significant difference in the way that something is worded, please let us know in the comment section because those types of differences, again, we, we hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, but to in context to the originals, the... Uh, People that do the translating, we often know that sometimes things can slip through the cracks no matter what translation you use. So in our studies, we like to use a variety of translations because some focus on the society, some focus on the history, some focus on philosophy, some do word by word, some do phrase by phrase. So we want to get as much um, meaning as we can as we look not only at these, but as I've already demonstrated, look at the original languages as well. So if you see a difference that's notable, let us know. Starting with verse 7. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David. I want you to underline that in your copy of God's Word. We'll swing back around to that in just a second. Who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look. I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. One of the things that we can take away from this is that even though Jesus says to his disciples earlier on in, in, in the Gospels that uh, he is giving the disciples, plural, the keys that what they loose will be loosed in heaven, what they bind will be bound in heaven, what this is effectively saying is there, there is this eternal relationship, and by that I mean a relationship through the scope of eternity, that if that, that the Holy Spirit is so richly dwelling within them, again, where two or more are gathered, I am in the midst of you, that there is the Holy Spirit's activity, that if they signify something, unless they are siding with pride, over humility and siding with personal desires instead of, uh, of serving God, then what they are proclaiming is what is also written in heaven. That they're not making something up and God is being subservient to them. Do not read that in this text. But instead, what Jesus is saying is that what they will do, if they are reliant on the Holy Spirit that is in the midst of them, what they are doing has already been authorized in heaven not the other way around. I know your works, verse 8. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close. What this is basically setting up is the fact that there are opportunities for this church to explore, to minister to, that no one is going to be able to take away from them. And this is significant because this means that no matter what the enemy is putting in front of this church, as long as they are true to their calling, their ministerial opportunities will not be taken away. Verse 9, note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan, we've heard this term before, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. 
that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live upon the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have. Hold fast in some of your translations so that no one takes your crown. To the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he will, in, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. Notice that names plays an important part in this chapter. The idea of names, particularly in Philadelphia, remember we talked about this city changing its name, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times just in the, in, in the, the history immediately prior to Christ. And again, we know because it's now in Turkey instead of the Roman Empire that there was a fifth change. So the idea of the permanence of the name of God the permanence of the name of, of heaven, of the new Jerusalem, as, we, as this identifies it, is important because that means this cannot be changed. You have been written upon. God has placed his seal upon you. That's what he's alluding to. I will write down on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, foreshadowing for the future, and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear, to listen to what the listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, open letter. Start by taking a look at the title for Christ. Agios from the early Greek, which means holy. It can also mean to be physically pure, as we're talking about a sacrifice of the old sacrificial system without spot or blemish. Uh, something that is someone rather that is morally blameless or has been consecrated by God. We can also, the word holy in English, to add a bit more meaning to it, uh, comes from the, the, the fact that it sounds like the word whole, W H O L E, uh, does not, is, is not lost upon us because that means that this person is perfect in that they are complete, needing for nothing, wanting for nothing that they have everything, all power, all knowledge, all might, all present, set aside and consecrated. Um, Jesus, uh, God, in the throne room of the universe, is called holy by the seraphim in Isaiah 6.3. In fact, whenever you see or hear the angels proclaiming, holy is the Lord, they will not just stop with one holy. They will say, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. What? Why? Just as a speculation for you to write down in your notes, why do the angels proclaim not holy is the Lord, but holy, 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 three holies is the Lord God Almighty. The triune God, gold star. The Trinity, it is a foreshadowing of the Trinity. The New Testament is the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So here in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, we have a foreshadowing of the knowledge of the triune God. Jesus is declared holy at his birth in Luke 1.35 by the prophet um, Excuse me, by the prophet Zacharias, actually his his relative, who's the son, uh, the father rather of John the Baptist. Um, his holiness was preached about with regards to his sacrifice by Peter in Acts chapter two, verse twenty-seven, and this is also true of his office as 
the holy, the complete, the high priest in Hebrews 7.25. He also is known as the true one. Aletheinos, from the Greek aletheia, which means truth. Um, And these are the definitions coming out of Strong's definitions or the Dictionary of Biblical Use. In every respect corresponding to the idea signified by the name, the name of our Savior, as he would have been called in Israel, is not Jesus. That is a Greekified way of saying his name. The name of our Savior in his original language is Yeshua, which in itself is, is a contraction of Yehoshua, Joshua, all of which means Savior. So to be true in terms of this definition is that you live up to your title. That when you have been issued with some kind of standing, a label, a name, that you live up to that. And that is very much the case with regards to our Savior. To be real, to be true, to genuine also, to stand, write this down in your notes, to stand against that which is fictitious. So it's not good enough when we're talking about what is true, that it just happens to be correct or factual. It must stand against actively that which is a lie, that which is untrue. It contrasts realities with their semblances. In other words, instead of just having an appearance, you have substance as well, whereas Sardis did not. Sometimes you might see a large church that looks like it's active, that may have an outstanding laser light show, uh, smoke screen and all that wonderful stuff as part of their, their, um, their worship hour, but they only meet for their worship hour. You might hear them proclaim something from the pulpit, but not always Scripture. They leave out the Scripture. They leave out the context of Scripture. They go for the emotionalism rather than the substance. You find out that they don't have a Sunday school, or if they do, it is very watered down and surface level. So the reality of the fact is that it might look wonderful on the outside, but very little engaged discipleship and maturing Christianity, maturing spirituality is going on on the inside. So that's one of the things about this kind of truth is that uh, what, is, what is on the outside and what is on the inside mesh, what looks pleasing on the outside or what looks alive on the outside is also very much active on the inside. And it also means to be sincere. What is different about our religion from all other religions out there, and I will proclaim this and proclaim it boldly, and I hope you do as well, is that our God's ability to call others to himself is very much predicated on the fact that he is righteous, that he is sincere, that he is not capricious, that he is unchanging. Our God is the same today as he was yesterday and will be what? Forevermore. So God does not change. His desires do not change. His will does not change. As we've seen through a a look in our sermon series over the book of Romans versus what we saw In the Old Testament, God of the Old Testament is still the God of the New Testament. There is no difference. The difference is the Christ event, whereby the sacrificial system isn't replaced, but it is fulfilled. And in that fulfillment, we as Gentiles now have the ability to be grafted on to the people of God. Okay, so God is righteous. He is sincere. God does not lie. God does not tell falsehood. God does not change his mind. His truth 
is always truth. It is objective truth that cannot be uh, conveniently dealt with. Moving on. Talking about the key of David, what does that mean? To understand that, we go back to the book of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 22. Really quickly, if you want to jot this down, it should be in your notes as well. The prophet is talking about the changing of someone who is a corrupt official over Israel to someone who is very much tailor-made by God himself for the position of the treasurer over Israel. And the prophet writes from the voice of God on that day, I will call for my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and tie your sash around him. I will hand your authority over to him and he will be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. As we're reading this, I want you to notice the parallels between the way that we would describe Christ and the way that the prophet is describing this Eliakim, who is the new treasurer over Israel. And we'll see that there's a messianic parallel here, that to understand the guy that he's talking about also gives us an indicator about some of the ministry and some of the truth behind who Jesus himself is. For instance, he will be like a father to Jerusalem and the house of Judah in particular, which is where, where Jesus comes to us from. I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, underline this or highlight it, what he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. In other words, his personality will be so in parallel with the personality and the will of God that it has already been kind of foreplanned that what he does will be, will be in parallel with God's will. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be a throne to, of honor for his father's family. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's family, the descendants and the offshoots, all the small vessels from bowls to every kind of jar, you should already be able to see the parallels between what we, how, how we understand the way that God is describing this Eliakim and how God would later describe his son. So the key of David, uh, and again, practically we're talking about the installation of a new treasure in the gentleman Eliakim, but this is a badge of office. The key of David used to be a literal key. It was a giant brass key that was slung with uh, what we would call in our military merit cord around one of the shoulders of the, of the treasurer. And what that also represented is the fact that this person was not just a treasurer in the accountant type of way. He was also very much the major domo of the palace. You could not access the king unless you went through the treasurer first. He acted in a very prime minister type of capacity. So the only way you could gain access to the king of Israel was to first get through the gentleman who was in possession of the key of David. Now we get to the commendation. What Jesus is saying, pay attention to me, because I am the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. This is talking about his divinity. He is the incarnate God. We also talked about um, being true, meaning that he is a living representation of the objective truth of God. 
And now he is in possession, the badge of office of the key of David, meaning that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can what? Well, no one can come to the Father except by me. Okay. So his commendation bearing all of that uh, dignity is that I know your deeds, meaning that he's speaking of approval. I know what you've done. He's setting before them an open door that no one can shut, a door to ministry, as remarked in several chapters, several key chapters. But there's also a door to deliverance. Remember, this was a time where those who were Christian were facing... You could not be a Christian at this point in time without also facing death because of your faith. So there was not only the door to ministry, there was also a door to deliverance. A lot of people misquote the verse that says, uh, I hate to say that, but, but I will just to help you. Um, the, the verse, God will not set anything on you that is more than you can bear, is not found in Holy Scripture. I challenge anybody to look, Google it. Use whatever search engine you want. Use whatever uh, literary tool that you want that's at your disposal, electronic, written otherwise. That verse does not exist. What the Word of God does tell us is that God will not allow you to endure any temptation, any temptation beyond what you are able, but He will always provide for you a means of escape. There will always be a trap door in that situation, an open door that God will provide for you so that you can get around that temptation so that you do not fall into a place where your testimony gets tarnished before others so that you do not become an embarrassment to yourself, to your church, or worse, to God. Okay, so that's what he's basically saying. There are two doors that he can be alluded to here. And he's, he's talking about multiple doors. One of them found in Scripture is the door to ministry. The other one found in Scripture is the door to deliverance. We go on. You have but a little strength, meaning that you still have endurance, even though you're, you yourselves are under persecution. You have kept my word. You continue to study the scriptures. You continue to proclaim your gospel. You continue to know Christ and make Christ known. And you have not denied my name. So even in this situation where if you don't proclaim Caesar is God above all, they have remained loyal to their Savior. He also says that within the community at least, where there are false witnesses who he identifies as Jews who say they are yet are not. He will compel them to worship and we see that fulfilled as proclaimed again by one of the early church fathers. But Jews who are not, there are several different interpretations of that phrase that I'll give to you right now. Um, first, that, that these are persecutors within the congregation who are disguised as believers. That gets battered about. It's one that I do not subscribe to because uh, they would have said, he would, probably would have said uh, those that claim to be apostles and are not, those who claim to be the redeemed and are not, something along those lines. But he is specifically talking about Jews, um, which leads to the next one, that these are, he's talking about Jews who claim to be Jews by culture. Uh, they do the works. They, they, they go to the temple. They proclaim the fasts, they proclaim the feasts, or they're Jews by genealogy, racially, 
they are Jewish, but they are not Jewish by belief. In other words, they do not, uh, they are not par part with the scripture, they are not part with the teachings. They simply claim to the trappings of the religion without being engaged in the transformative power of it. We also could be talking about Jewish converts who are trying to sped, spread legalism within the congregation. Again, we've talked about this before, where there are those who proclaim a works-based righteousness, where in order to be a Christian, you have to first convert to Judaism and then come to Christ, that you have to undergo circumcision, that you have to live by the kosherite rule, that you had to be bar mitzvah, meaning that you have to memorize all of Torah, that you have to keep kosher. Um, but whichever interpretation that means, this, this is a significant thorn in the side of this congregation. These are a group of people that are causing dissent within the body of Christ, either from the outside or from within. But Jesus proclaims his own remedy that they will be compelled to proper worship. Um, Philippians 2, 10 through 11, that every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Meaning that, as the early church fathers proclaimed, that in this city where the Jewish population were intimidating and not like persecuting the Christian church, eventually, because they endured persecution, because they did not take up arms and fight hatred with hatred, because they kept loving others, because they kept on the missional ideal of feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, being a source of love and compassion within the city, being living up to the name Philadelphia, that those who were in that mindset converted and became part of the church. It also says that, according to Jesus, that this church would be exempted from a time of global trial or testing. Now, it says in some of your copies of God's Word, temptation. But in terms of the biblical context, more literally, that Greek word means that these will be, you will be tested, that the world will be tested. And again, the word perisomos, um, Again, the noun testing, not the adjective. So time of testing. What you have in your copy of God's Word literally means the time of the noun testing. So we're talking about, we're talking about the judgment. We're talking about a time of global um, we may be talking here about the global tribulation that will happen later on. Now, that's, that's one interpretation. It's also conjecturable because as we see, this church does not exist physically anymore. Are there still believers in this region? Yes. The question is, are they still a direct line back to this original church? Um, which they may very well be, the Christians in the area right now in Turkey. But... Um, one of the things that we do know that we kind of hold to in, in more of a historic grammatical uh, exegesis of this passage, of the book of Revelation, in fact, is that if you are in Christ, you will not be led to go through the tribulation period. And we're going to talk about that um, in the next few sessions once we get from the churches and go into what I'd like to call the, 
the, um, the hard prophecy within the book going into chapter 4. There's also this word that will come back to us in the next chapter, from chapter 4 on. Ketokio. Uh, I'm just going to move, keep moving. Please forgive my, hard, uh, my, my horrible, horrible alliteration skills. But that means to dwell. Now there are two words in the Greek. There's this one and there's another one that means to live in. But this one is particularly significant because it means to claim or identify with a permanent dwelling. Meaning that this, we're not talking about your address here, we're talking about your citizenship. So all throughout the book of Revelation, when it talks about those that dwell upon the earth, more literally it's meaning those that are a citizen of the kingdom of this world. Those that identify more with the enemy than with God who are identified as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So when he, call, when he says that the people who live upon the earth will be tested, he's not talking about those that just happen to be on the planet at the time. He's talking about those that identify with the kingdom of this world, the fallen kingdom in other words. And we'll see a lot more of that as we continue on. So Jesus' instruction to this church is to remember that he is coming soon, that these things will happen quickly. As he said with Smyrna, Hold on so that no one takes your crown. Hold fast. So what that means, that crown, and we've already talked about crowns, but I want you to notice this, is that when he talks about this kind of spiritual reward, a heavenly reward, it's something that these believers have already qualified for. Just like in the Olympics, they've run the course and they're already in the lead. They're pressing onto the finish line. And as long as they continue the way that they're going and they don't trip they will be rewarded this crown. They qualify for it. So this doesn't mean that they will lose their salvation. This is, again, this is a heavenly reward. This is something that they earn now that will be gifted to them in the hereafter. There is a potential for disqualification. Not that their eternal life is forfeit, but this particular glory that they will receive from God, that they will in turn present back to Him as a living sacrifice of praise, may be lost. And from the context, it's implied that we're talking about loyalty to the church's mission. A mission that can be summed up in the Great Commission. Go make disciples. Go make disciples. The fruit of a Christian is more Christians. But it's not good enough just to bring them to the altar. We have to disciple them. We have to teach them. We have to help them to grow, to mature, to mentor them. But... The point is that you have to go. You have to develop relationships. You have to love others in reflection of the way that He loves us. And we have to use that relationship as a means of proclaiming that God loves them too. Just to kind of tag on to what um, Jesus is telling them. The city of Philadelphia back in the 1300s, 1300s A.D., became a self-governing city. It was a city-state surrounded by the Ottoman Empire. It was the last Christian city of the region to fall. But the Ottoman invaders finally took it in 1390. 
They will be made a pillar in the temple of God. Now remember, this, is a, a, this was a city located in an earthquake-prone area of the world. So any sign of strength, what Jesus is basically saying, and he's using their history to say this, is you are a sign of stability when it comes to the capital C, the large C church. And I will make you a pillar in God. I will make you an emblem of strength among the saints. And you will not leave heaven. You are granted a citizenship in there that cannot be taken away from you. Eternal citizenship in heaven. Uh, your identity will be held in a way that will not change. And you will be written with the name of God, with the name of, a new name of Christ. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in latter, in latter chapters. And also the name of Jerusalem, meaning that you are God's. You are part of the family of God. You are part of the family that includes Christ altogether. And you are a citizen of heaven. And again, I realize that this is conjecturable, but this period of church history talks, if we take it in that light, refers to the period of the rise of denominations and the spreading out of the missionary movement from those denominations. This is where uh, the denominational identities first begin where there is this fracturing within the Western and later the Eastern churches. But in that fracture, in that scattering, just as the Jerusalem church was scattered, as the churches spread out, they won more to Christ. They became uncomfortable and they went out. And through that temporary discomfort, God prompted them to reach out to others, to love others, and to draw them forth. So there was a missionary fervor and spread of both missionaries and evangelists globally. Um, this was also a period of time that we can characterize by the revival of apologetics, which is the art and science of defending the faith against uh, competing religions. And what is the difference between our religion and others? And do we have the skill, do we have the knowledge capable of saying, I know what makes Christianity unique in terms of a world religion? I know how to proclaim the gospel to someone who is of a different faith just by my own experiences. I know how to demonstrate the love of God to others and to tell them both personally and scripturally why Christ has made a difference in me. Which leads us to this being a time of revival of biblical theology, meaning that instead of harboring the old traditions of the church, those that came in over time and putting them on the same level of, um, of authority as the Holy Scripture itself, the Word of God, that a lot of the denominational movements at this time took these, examined them in light of Holy Scripture and where they were found incompatible, removed themselves from them. So this is where a lot of, a lot of faith branches, including and especially the Baptist tradition, let go of everything of the old, went back to Holy Scripture as the sole authority and tried our best to reestablish the Christian church, the Christian faith and message, as we saw it portrayed in the Holy Scripture. So for next session, we'll be going over the final church listed in this list of seven, uh, the church of Laodicea. I want you to please read over this text, read it twice, once surface level, and once slowly, try to pick up on images, ideas, and things that, that 
enable you to see Christ at work. And I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. Number one, where is Christ in relationship to this church? Where is Christ in relationship to this church? As he is telling John to pen this down, where does he see himself in relationship to the people that he's called to be this church? Who's actually running the church? Now, we understand from the Word of God that Christ is to be the head of his church, that he has possession of it. But who in this instance is actually governing, Christ or someone else? What are your personal experiences in a church, if you have one, that kind of mirrors what we've just talked about and that you see in this chapter? And please, as you're reading through it, journal these questions. Journal these questions as well as the impressions they leave behind and talk about them in your groups. And if you haven't found a group yet, please get a hold of somebody. And if that somebody is already in a group, You can add other people. Don't worry about that. But please, talk about these in groups because that's where you're not only just exposed to information, but that's where it becomes real. That's where it goes from being a head knowledge to heart knowledge. So please, groups of no fewer than three, if possible, no more than five. And if you have someone that is just coming to you that can't find a place, go ahead and welcome them in. But please, meet together. Meet together often. And pray for one another. So, let's close together with a word of prayer. If you'll bow your hearts with me. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. We thank you for being a God who never leaves nor forsakes us. For those in our community in particular, Lord, who are still struggling with illness, uh, those who are at home, who are fearful for what the world has in place. Lord, in our time of uncertainty, we ask that you would continue to kindle within us a light of your light of truth, your light of hope, your peace of mind that passes all understanding. Lord, inspire us to be a non-anxious presence in a dramatically anxious world. Help us to also be a source of unity so that this fractured world that we live in might come together See your love and see a better path forward. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.